Welcome, everybody. In this time of the COVID pandemic still ravaging the world, laying bare stark inequalities and neglect of human rights, we come together in solidarity today for the inaugural Wollstonecraft Society Lecture to carry forth the flames of Mary Wollstonecraft. A late 18th century activist and intellectual, Mary Wollstonecraft was a pioneering fighter, not only for women's rights, demanding justice for one half of the human race, as she put it, but for human rights for all. I'm Alpha Shah, an Associate Professor of Anthropology at the London School of Economics, and also convener of a research theme on the global economies of care at the International Inequalities Institute, the III. We are delighted at the III to be hosting this lecture in collaboration with the Wollstonecraft Society and the Newington Green Meeting House. Today's inaugural lecture will be given by Professor Amratya Sen, who has been one of the important forces reviving the legacy of Mary Wollstonecraft, long ago drawing attention to her as the most underestimated thinker of the Enlightenment. Amratya Sen is Thomas Lamont, professor, university professor and professor of economics and philosophy at Harvard University. But here at LSE, we very much consider him as part of our community. He was a professor of economics at LSE from 1971 to 1977, taught part-time from 1978 to 1982, and is now LSE Honorary Fellow. An Amratya Sen Chair in Inequality Studies was announced in 2019 to mark his legacy. Amratya Sen's research and writings have been world-changing. From his analysis of famine to his development of the capability approach, he has transformed economics, development studies, and beyond to center ideas of justice, freedom, and human rights. Amrata Sen's books have been translated into more than 30 languages, and his awards include the Nobel Prize in Economics. His, his memoir, Home in the World, will be, will be published in July by Penguin, something that we all look forward to. Before handing over to Professor Sen, I will give the floor to B. Rowlett, who is chair of the Wollstonecraft Society that is establishing this lecture series. B. Rowlett is author of In Search of Mary, a book retracing Wollstonecraft's 1795 treasure hunt over the Skagurak Sea. B. Rowlatt led the successful campaign for the Wollstonecraft Memorial Sculpture, whose fruits we can now all admire at Newington Green in Hackney, London. B. will speak for just a few minutes before handing over to Professor Sen to present his lecture for half an hour. We will have some time for Q&A towards the end before we finish at 7.15. Please use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen, stating your name and affiliation. I will now hand over to B. Rowlett. Thank you to everyone in the audience for coming, for being with us today. I hope this event will provide a platform for community building and education, optimism and hope in the spirit of Mary Wollstonecraft and something that we all despe desperately need right now. Enjoy. Thanks very much, Alpa, and thanks, LSE. Um, I'm B. Rolatz, and I'm one of the trustees of the Wollstonecraft Society. 
We're a new human rights education charity set up so that young people can discover Mary Wollstonecraft's astonishing life and her powerfully relevant work and be inspired by it. We've already enabled school visits, um, educational materials. This, for example, is the first ever Mary Wollstonecraft comic um, created by a local talented young artist. That's been delivered into over 200 state school libraries. Um, it, this is all in conjunction with our wonderful friends at Newington Green Meeting House, who, by the way, have a week-long series of events themed around Mary Wollstonecraft's birthday, so do check that out. The Wollstonecraft Society was born out of the campaign for a memorial artwork for Wollstonecraft. Um, you may remember that as the statue that wasn't a statue, the nudity furore that broke the internet and upset local, national and international press for over a week. At the end of which, my mum very wisely remarked, well, you did want the whole world to know about her. Which, of course, we do. And that's what's happening here today. Wollstonecraft's life was short but immense. Her work was foundational and it was prescient and it goes on inspiring us today and beyond. And we've all heard um, children say, that's not fair. And, you know, we've all been that kid. Um, what Mary Wollstonecraft teaches us is to scrutinise that impulse, to apply our critical faculties to it, to use our reason, a term she was so fond of. And if we don't do this, we're just another angry person shouting on the internet. Um, in contrast, tonight, we are so lucky to have Amartya Sen giving this Wollstonecraft Society lecture. You all, of course, know his work on famine, on justice, on feminism. He was also a Wollstonecraft fan long before it was fashionable. Um, the last time I saw you speak, Amartya, was at in New Delhi, at the launch of your book, uh, The Country of First Boys. And the huge hall filled up, the seats filled up, the corridors filled up, the doors filled up. Then people started to scramble through the windows. Every inch was filled and everybody was hanging on his every word. That's how lucky we are to have Amartya Sen with us here right now. And with that, it's my great honour to hand over to you, Amartya. Thank you so much. Um... It's really a wonderful opportunity for me to join in the celebration of the beginning of the Wilson Craft Society. Uh, as uh, we mentioned, I have been a devotee of Wilson, Wilson Craft thinking uh, for a very long time, from my own student days, in fact. And the, um, this is a fantastic occasion and is being held in my favorite institution, namely the London School of Economics. Uh, I couldn't be happier. And Mary Wilson-Kopf's ideas were hugely important in the advancement of radical social thinking in the 18th century, a century that was also blessed with welcoming the highly original thoughts of David Hume, Immanuel Kant, Adam Smith, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the Marquis de Condorcet, Edmund Burke, and Jeremy Bentham, among others. It's a very rich century. But I would say still that um, Mary Wollstonecraft is perhaps the most underestimated philosopher 
of the European Enlightenment, um, which fetches, of course, over the 18th century. Among Mary Wollstonecraft's path-breaking ideas, I will particularly re-engage today with her contributions to the discipline of human rights, including her early recognition of the conceptual importance of the perspective of the perspective of these rights, and a focus on the relevance of this perspective as a powerful intellectual background for resisting established inequalities. The intellectual world has changed a great deal over the centuries, and some of the things that Mary had argued for are now easily recognized. And yet the need for an integrated intellectual foundation for the perspective of human rights is still very strong. We live in a world in which the idea of human rights is invoked in a great many different contexts. Democratic rights in protesting against authoritarian abuse, rights to personal liberty in defending elementary autonomies and private life, civil rights in demanding basic political freedoms, economic rights against hunger and deprivation, health rights for medical care, particularly noticeable right now, gay and lesbian rights to safeguard freedom to pursue chosen lifestyles, and so on. The rhetoric of human rights is omnipresent in the contemporary world. However, despite the tremendous appeal of the idea of human rights, it is also seen by many as being intellectually frail, lacking in foundation and perhaps even in coherence and cogency. It tells me too that the frequent use of the language of quote unquote rights of all human beings, very frequently used, which can be seen in many practical arguments and pronouncements, has not been adequately matched by critical scrutiny of the basis and congruity of the underlying concepts. This is partly because the invoking of human rights tends to come mostly from those who are more concerned with changing the world than with interpreting it, a distinction made famous by Karl Marx. There is stirring appeal on one side and deep conceptual skepticism on the other. Underlying that skepticism is the question, what exactly are human rights and why do we need them? Mary Wollstonecraft's contributions in answering these questions remain critically important even after two and a quarter centuries. In her book, A Vindication of the Rights of Men, published in 1790, Mary Wollstonecraft told Edmund Burke, it's a kind of reply to Edmund Burke's essay on, on the American Revolution, that he was 
that he worked was much too greedy for, and I quote Rutzenkopf, instantaneous applause. You're seeking that all the time. As a result, you, you don't get, you're not able to see things clearly. clearly. That was Mary's point. She invited Burke to reflect further. Their differences were clear enough since they took in many ways exactly opposite views in the two great revolutions of their time, the American Revolution and the French Revolution. At the risk of a slight oversimplification, it can be said that Edmund Burke supported the American Revolution, but not the French. Mary, Mary Wilsonkoff was thrilled with the French rising, but remained very doubtful about the thinking behind the American Revolution. Burke's critique of the French Revolution, with which we can begin, had come out in 1790 in his book called Reflections on the Revolution in France where he made a powerfully conservative critique of what was happening in France. In fact, Burke's reflections on the French Revolution soon became, as the uh, writer and, and playwright Stephen Greenblatt has put it, I quote, the most eloquent stat statement of British conservatism, favoring monarchy, aristocracy, property, hereditary succession, and the wisdom of the ages, unquote. So it became a kind of classic conservative text. Wilson Craft, in contrast, wanted radical change. I don't think there was a bit of any bit of conservatism in her, and saw the French Revolution as great signs of hope. The difference between the two and the French Revolution is not hard to understand. But what about the American Revolution? What could have upset Mary Wilsoncroft, the quintessentially revolutionary English woman, about the American Revolution to make her skeptical of it? Why should a revolutionary woman be skeptical at all? of a very important uh, revolution, namely the American Revolution. How did she justify her lack of sympathy for the fight for independence of America from colonial British rule? Here is what Wilson Croft said in criticizing Black support for American independence in a book, the first book I mentioned, A Vindication of the rights of men. So I'm now quoting Mary Wilsoncroft, um, criticizing Burke. On what principle Mr. Burke could defend American independence, I cannot conceive. For the whole tenor of his plausible argument settles slavery on an everlasting foundation. Allowing his servile reverence for antiquity and prudent attention 
to self-interest, you have the force which he insists on. The slave trade ought never to be abolished. And because our ignorant forefathers, not understanding the native dignity of man, sanctioned the traffic, that slavery, that outrages every suggestion of reason and religion, we are to submit to the inhuman custom and turn an exclusive insult to humanity, that is slavery, the love of our country, and a proper submission to the laws by which our property is secured. Unquote. That's the end of the quotation from Mary. So Wilson criticism of the American Revolution was not uh, one for not wanting change, it's for wanting more change in America rather than less. She insisted that we cannot demand human rights for white Americans, but not for others. And it's not acceptable to keep some people enslaved while demanding self-governing freedom for others. Um, whether Wilson Craft foresaw that uh, slavery would in fact be outlaw outlawed in the British Empire well before this would happen in America, I'm not able to guess. But her argument surely was that it is not acceptable to demand freedom for some while keeping others in chains. Central to Wilson Craft's focus was the urgent need for the human rights of slaves, which the American Revolution did not offer or even accept. So that's where her breaking of rank with the American Revolution lies. The perspective of human rights, rights that everyone is supposed to have, is particularly relevant in battling against inequality in human society. Slavery, slavery surely, is a spectacular violation of human rights. The abolition of slavery would be only a beginning, but it would be a solid beginning of the vindication, to use Mary's own language, of the rights of women as well as men. And it could initiate an in intellectual agenda for radical reorganization of society in the 18th century. Mary Wollstonecraft's own understanding of the need for clear articulation of the content of human rights evolved over the years. It actually did change a bit. When she wrote her first book on rights, A Vindication of the Rights of Men, in 1790, she took the term men to cover both women and men, as is often done. But by the time, two years later, in 1792, Mary published a second book on rights, which is called A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. She had become very aware of the inequalities from which women suffered, and related to that, the overwhelming need for fighting for women's rights 
as a category on its own and not just as a corollary of the rights of men standing for women as well. So there was a need for specifying the rights of women in particular, and that happened within these two years. Human rights have to be distinguished from legal rights, and following Wilson Clark's reasoning, they can be seen, that is, human rights, as preceding, coming before legal rights. Indeed, they can be seen as motivation for legislation to establish certain legal rights for the benefit of all human beings. In this philosophical perspective, human rights are best seen as articulation of particular commit commitments in ethics, social ethics in particular, comparable to, but very different from, accepting utilitarian demand. You see, you don't compare the utilitarian demand with legal rights. Utilitarian demands are ethical claims, and what Wilson-Craft is saying, we have to replace the utilitarian demand with claims in ethics, and that's where human rights comes in. Like other ethical tenets, human rights can, of course, be disputed. But the claim is that they will survive open and informed scrutiny. Any universality, any universality that these claims have is dependent on the opportunity of unobstructed discussion, examination, and scrutiny. This view contrast with seeing human rights in primarily legal terms, either as consequences of humane legislation or the, as precursors of legal rights. Human rights may well be reflected in legislation and may also inspire legislation. But this is a further fact, what the philosopher calls a further fact. It's true, but it's not a definitional characteristic. It's a further fact, something more. A further fact, rather than a defining characteristic of human rights themselves. Many acts of legislation and legal convention, for example, like the powerful, I quote, the European Convention for the Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedom, have clearly been inspired by belief in some pre-existing rights of all human beings. In a classic essay called Are There Any Natural Rights, published in 1955, Herbert Hart, the outstanding legal philosopher from Oxford, argued that people, I quote, speak of their moral rights, mainly when advocating their incorporation in a legal system. So in that sense, it comes before the legal rights. This is certainly one way in which human rights has been invoked and Hart's qualified defense of the idea and usefulness of human rights in this context has been justly 
influential. <clears throat> the heart and the foot is very much within Wilsonkoff's line of thinking. Wilsonkoff, however, went further. She didn't she didn't human rights only as inspiring legislation. She wanted more. The idea of human rights can be and actually use and actually is used in several other ways that go well beyond legislation. In many contexts, legislation is not at all involved. Indeed, many of the cases in which the idea of human rights is used, often to great effect, are not matters of legal rights at all, but what can be broadly called moral or ethical demands on each other which influences our action. If a government is accused of violating some human rights, that acquisition cannot really be answered simply by pointing out that there are no legally established rules in that country guaranteeing those legal rights. The case of fulfilling these rights, even in the absence of legislation, can be demanded on strongly moral grounds. And this is surely now one of the principal uses of human rights in the contemporary world. This exercise particularly uh, to human rights that relate to development, such as the right to food or to medicine or to some basic income. For example, in criticizing the present government of India, criticizing the present government of India for its abject failure to provide the means of income subsistence and employment for people, including the four, the moral and political four of the criticism can be solved for reasons that Mary Wilsonkoff had seen with great clarity, not because there is any legislation or even a proposal for legislation, but because it is politically and morally deeply important to have people with employment, income, and, and the basic facilities of living. Even when this failure arises from consequences of hurriedly chosen anti-pandemic policy, as uh, not entirely, but to a great extent, is the case in India, Wilson Kraft's argument remains critically important in demanding that the public policy currently enforced be amended to protect people's important human rights. That, of course, is a major debate going on in India right now. And it's, it's, it's really on Wilson-Craftian line. The relation between human rights and legal rights is, in fact, a subject also with some considerable history. The American Declaration of independence in 1776, took it to be, I quote, self-evident that everyone is, quote, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable 
rights. And 13 years later, in 1789, the French Declaration of the Rights of Men asserted that, quote, men are born and remain free and equal in right. By the way, using the word men here to cover women too, in terms of the 1790 use of Wilson Carver than the 1792 distinction. These are clearly free legal terms to be reflected in law, not originating in law, and as such, they belong to the same category as human rights. I did not, however, take, sorry, it did not, however, take Jeremy Bentham long, uh, who was very opposed to the idea of human rights, in his work called Anarchical Fallacies, written at the same time during 1791-92, aimed specifically against the French idea of human rights, to propose the total dismissal of all such claims, precisely because they are not legally based. That he won't accept the claim for anything to be a right without legality behind it. Bentham insisted that, I quote, natural rights is simple nonsense. And natural and imprescriptible rights, and, and Bentham described it as an American phrase, rhetorical nonsense, nonsense upon stilts. I'm not quite sure what nonsense upon stilts might mean, but is I take it some kind of a artificially elevated nonsense. He went, when uh, Bentham went on to explain, I quote from Bentham, right, the substantive right, is the child of law. From real laws come real rights, but from imaginary laws, from laws of nature, can come only imaginary rights. It's easy to see that Bentham's rejection of the idea of natural rights of man, of man depends entirely on his insistence on a privileged use of the term rights, seeing it in specifically legal terms and in no other. However, insofar as human rights are meant to be significant ethical change, um, as Mary Wilson Duff pointed out, pointing to what we owe to each other and what claims we must take seriously, as Mary Wilson Duff discussed, the diagnosis that these claims do not necessarily have legal force, at least not yet, is in fact quite irrelevant. These human rights were not, as with Bentham, children of law, but in fact, can be seen as parents of law, providing ground for legislation, a point of view that would receive support from the legal philosophy of Harvard, Herbert Hart, whom I quoted earlier. Mary Wilsonkoff discussed elaborately how women's legitimate entitlement could be promoted 
by a variety of processes, of which legislation was only one, and need not even be always the principal one. The effectiveness of these moral claims, their practical vindication, in addition to their ethical acceptance, would depend on a variety of social features, such as actual educational arrangement, public campaign for behavioral modification, for example, modifying what we would now call sexist behavior, and so on. The subject, I dare say, is increasingly better understood in public discussions today than it was at the time when Bentham was quarreling with Wilson Cup. Wilson Cup would not have been in the least surprised that many social movements, including the work of NGOs, such as Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Medicines of 48, Oxfam and others, have been so effective in helping to protect and advance human rights in economic, social, political, medical, and other fields through channels quite other than legislation. Wilson Carter approach received strong support from the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was made in 1948. Um, particularly led by Eleanor Roosevelt, which paved the way for many constructive global activities. That declaration did not give the recognized human rights any legal, any legal status, but the effectiveness of the recognition of human rights has come in many other ways. The ways include fresh legislation, with an agreed recognition, which an agreed recognition can inspire, but not just that, but also other efforts that are supported and bolstered by the recognition of some foundational claims as globally acknowledged human rights. Also, global NGOs like uh, Amnesty Oxfam and so on have been involved for a long time in advancing human rights to actual program in providing food or medicine or shelter, <coughs> or by helping to develop economic and social opportunities. Uh, <coughs> yeah. um, um, and also through public discussion and advocacy and through publicizing and criticizing violation of these required behavior. I move now to a final question. If human, if human rights are not vindicated by legislation, rather legislation may draw on them, what criteria can we use for the ethical vindication of these claims? May Wilson Clough clearly accepted that, like other claims that are subjected to public reasoning, the robustness of human rights relates to the strength of reasoning 
in particular on their survivability in unobstructed discussion. Kind of point that, as philosophers in the audience would know, has been much discussed, particularly recently by people like Derek Farfe, Kinskind and Tom Nagel and others. The fact that invoking of the idea of human rights has such social and political effectiveness is itself some evidence in the direction of the durability and reach of these claims. But it is possible further to have substantive arguments on what priorities we should place on different claims that all have widespread appeal but differ in their importance for human freedom. To subject the claims of human rights to public scrutiny is a part of the discipline of human rights, is not a sign of any weakness. Indeed, the connection between public reasoning and the formulation and use of human rights is extremely important to understand. Any general plausibility that the ethical force of human rights has is on this theory, dependent on their survival and flourishing when they encounter unobstructed discussion and scrutiny, along with adequately wide informational availability. So I end by emphasizing that Mary Wilson Cup's far-reaching approach to human rights is a very powerful example of the use of reason-based ethics. Her perspective had the promise of vastly extending the reach of social thinking from which the world has greatly benefited. We have reason to be grateful to this 18th century radical thinker. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Sten. That was absolutely fantastic. Um, also, just so vastly, vastly, I mean, hugely important um, to revive the idea of human rights as being separate from legislation and something that we all need to reclaim and reason with. And 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 you've and in a time where authoritarian governments uh, are ruling the world and where we can see how uh, human rights uh, issues have to be separated from the law in order to reclaim what the state can do for the people. Um, it's just so important to have this lecture today, right now. Thank you. Um, so thank you, very much appreciated. There are um, a number of questions that have already been raised in the Q&A. And if you don't mind, I'm going to um, uh, turn to a few of them now. Uh, yeah. I'm aware that you've just given this huge lecture and, and, and uh, it's, it's an exhausting uh, task. Um, uh, but if you can bear with me, uh, I, will, I, will, I, will, I will take a few of the questions. Yeah. Um, there's, there's uh, one of the questions that has been raised, I guess it in some ways has been answered by, by what, how your lecture developed, but it came from Dipanshu Mohan, an LSC alumni. 
And he's asking um, to what extent uh, is an inflation of rights-based discourse legislating for change actually leading to a dilution of key ethical normative moral claims that are essential to safeguarding of an advocacy for human rights? So especially in this context where extremism, authoritarianism has risen. So, you know, you, you drew attention in your lecture to Amnesty International, uh, Oxfam, uh, Human Rights Watch and all the important work that they're doing. I guess the question is really asking what can be learned from the life and thought of Wollstonecraft to reimagine the discourse and practice of human rights advocacy for a better future. I mean, where should all of these organizations, what kind of advocacy for should human rights advocacy be taking for a better future? Yeah. Um, that's quite a big question. So perhaps I will, I will give that over to you. Yeah, well, I think the uh, these are big questions, certainly. But um, uh, I think one of the things that the uh, that Ray Wilsonkraft taught us is that you shouldn't be afraid of raising gigantic questions, uh, even if even if it looks that uh, nobody else is uh, raising them right now. When she raised this question, well, the, the, our first book, uh, dismissing the American Revolution's claim to be to be just on grounds that it admitted slavery, nowhere did it ban slavery. That's of course a very powerful argument. You cannot demand rights for some, but not for others. And then when she came to the women thing, she went on discussing as to how, giving good examples of how women are neglected. And one of the interesting things there is that she's liberating herself from just formal rights. And instead she's saying many things happening in the society will influence women's rights, human rights, for example, education, for example, voice in public discussion. Uh, it comes close even to discussing um, journalism, whether women can express their point of view. And if you look at these institutions, uh, Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, I've been one time or other, I've been involved with all of them, but they all uh, take on this very broad perspective. So I think, um, I'm not sure what Mohan's real why is, if it is that having uh, so many different things may dilute their force, I don't agree with that. I, I, I tend to take the Wurzenkraft point of view that you have to simultaneously approach them. One of these, uh, I strongly recommend you reading the second book, 1792 book, where she ends by addressing a French uh, legislator after the election. And she's saying, uh, look, uh, uh, I'm saying these things and I would like you to examine my argument, not just from the example, but from its principle and compare it 
with the principle that neglect two women. And if after that examination you come round to the view then that women's perspectives deserve a bigger attention, then I would request you to take it up with the French Assembly to incorporate that change. So, you see, at one side, she's very practical, not letting it go. Uh, of course, the reign of terror is still to come, and that wouldn't be a very good period. But she was still hoping that something can be done by reasoning. So she had this great faith in reasoning, great faith in facts and examples, but also great courage in taking on many questions and arguing that you have to approach these questions simultaneously. It's not good enough to think of law. You have to think about schooling, newspapers, and what we what is conventional for people to talk about when they meet. Thank you, thank you. Um, all power to Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and all the wonderful work that they're doing right now, right? Um, I have another question from Apala Mandal, uh, who is a student at Delhi University. And this is a question that I think often comes up uh, when I speak to students too. Um, uh, and it's about the, 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 the um, uh, the individualization, uh, the individualization of rights that are based on notions of human rights. So she says, and I'll just tell you exactly what she says because it's, it's very articulately put, put together. According to Mahmoud Mamdani, the issue of invoking the language of human rights to address violations turns structural discrimination into individualizable crimes. While this helps visualize and address violations, Mamdani's claim is it divorces occurrences from the circumstances that birthed them, right? The, the structural circumstances. In this context of the violations I see in my nation today, she's talking about India, this pattern seems to be recreated. Do you think that this is an inherent flaw of a human rights paradigm vindicated by legislation? I'm not sure I fully understood it. Uh... I greatly respect Mamdani, who is also a personal friend. Um, but what is he saying? What is, where are we making the mistake? So, as I understand it, I mean, I wish Apala could speak, <laughs> speak up right she, now. She, but she, yeah, no, no, she is not here. Um, I am not we sure. Not able to find her. Yeah, we not able to find yeah. Okay. Uh, so I'd have to just imagine what she's saying, but um, it, it's about the tension that exists between a kind of structural notion of human rights, you know, holding structures to account and structural circumstances account to account, whereas a lot of rights-based legislation is based on the idea of an individual, so holding individuals to account. So how how do, how, um, you know, do you think that there is an inher inherent flaw in the human rights paradigm, which is based no, on individual? Notion of rights, yeah. No, I, I think this is a very interesting question. Mm. Uh, I think it was best addressed by Karl Marx, actually, in the in the in the book called um, uh, um, uh, the, the uh, well, the book on German ethics, really, uh, uh, and the uh, and he's discussing that the problem here arises. From not from looking at the individual, 
but not understanding that individual is a social creature. So you cannot divorce the individual from the structure with, under which the individual moves. Yeah? Uh, the, um, uh, uh, in fact, in my first book, Collective Choice and Social Welfare, I quote that sentence of Marx in the first phrase to indicate it's not, don't ask the question, why only the individual? Why only the individual is a big question. The individual is a very big thing. The individual lives in a society, has been reared by parents, has gone to school, has argued with friends, has quarreled with them, and had belonged to political groups or literary or social uh, interactions. And that's what the individual is. So what we are seeing as social features are part of the making up of the individuals. And after, after all, when we born or die, we may die alone and we may be born alone. But that doesn't make us alone through our life because what we do is, uh, is, is, is to be integrated with the world around us. And that's what the book German Ideology is really, um, well, there are many different points, but that's a strikingly important point. I have a book coming out, by the way, <laughs> called, <laughs> called uh, um, uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a movement from Tagore. Uh, uh, in, in, it's about our, our role in uh, our home in the world, it's called. And I discussed there how this, this Marxian idea actually relates. Uh, I'm not a Marxist, by the way. Uh, there are quite a lot of Marxist ideas. I think I don't know that's important to But there are some real gems, and this is one of the gems. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. And, and I think the whole premise of your lecture is that we've got to look beyond legislation to, uh, to, to a yeah. big kind of moral, ethical idea of human exactly. rights. That's exactly right. Exactly. So we move away from, you know, legislating against what an individual says yeah. to a wider idea. Um, so thank you for the answer. Another, there's some really fantastic questions out there. Uh, another really great question is um, from Samuel, who is a PPE student at the Open University in U UK. And he says that um, he, he finds it fascinating that Mary Wollstonecraft opposed the American Revolution uh, while it was supported, if not instigated, by Thomas Paine. And both were arguing on the grounds of rights. So what is the key difference in each of their stances? Are, are you able to, to elaborate on, on, on that? This is a very exciting and interesting question. Yeah. Uh, and uh, as a fellow alumnus of Open University, since I did honorary degree from there, I'm delighted that question is coming from the Open University. I think what happened is that the American Revolution was a thrilling moment. Did it not thrill Mary Wilson Taft? 
I bet it did. But Wilson Cup was hoping that, if I may use that expression, about the American Revolution did not address slavery. Like many others in, 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 in Britain, including, as it happened, the leading economist of that time, named Adam Smith, who was great opponent of slavery, uh, similarly, Marquette, Condorcet, great opponent of slavery, and supporter of the American Revolution and the French. But they hoped very much that the American Revolution would address the issue of uh, slavery, but it didn't. And what, um, uh, now you mentioned, which other supporter did you mention? You mentioned somebody's name, uh, other than, uh, other than Wilson Carr. Mm. You just mentioned yeah. Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine, Tom Paine. Now Tom Paine, now, see, Tom Paine took a different line, namely he was using the red pen over the American Declaration of Independence. And he wanted to change it in certain ways. And he thought that ideally they should have been different and proceeded to discuss what its implications would be. And in fact, um, Guy Stedman Jones in his book on poverty in America says that the alterations that um, Tom Paine was suggesting dealing with the understanding of poverty actually had a major influence on poverty legislation in, in America. And similarly, he would have wanted the slavery, he was anti-slavery, he would have wanted that to be changed. So Tom Paine, uh, you know, uh, was in favor of American Revolution, which in an odd way, Mary Wilson class was, it was too. They both found certain features of it, of them, uh, unacceptable. Mary Wilson Club just uh, made a very strong denunciation, and and it sounded fantastic. The most revolutionary English woman of her time saying, "How could you support American Revolution?" I mean, it sounds it's really almost from a play. But what she is trying to say, for God's sake stand up and, and, and address slavery. And what Tom Paine was that, here I'm addressing slavery. Read me, please, read me. So there wasn't an, a real difference between them. And, and, uh, and also what I said about human rights, uh, not every bit of it, but quite a bit of it, uh, Tom Paine would have also gone with Wilson Craft almost all the way. Uh, Wilson Craft was uh, more focused on certain things than Tom Paine was. Tom Paine was a general anti-poverty philosopher, really. 
Thank you. We have a question from Lee Edwards, who is a professor in the Department of Media and Communications here at the LSE. And he says, uh, he asks, uh, what challenges do you see uh, for the maintenance and development of human rights in this digital age, given the limits of an increasingly commercialized and politicized online world uh, and what you know the obstructions uh, it puts to discussion? So, um, yeah, it's a very relevant question uh, from Lee Edwards to you. It's very relevant indeed from Lee. Um, I think we have to distinguish between the way in which modernity aids human rights and the way it uh, makes it more challenging and difficult. I think the informational thread is a very positive feature of this. When something, consider the case, for example, the, um, when the Taliban captured the Fort Valley in Pakistan, and there were uh, uh, cases of a young girl being penalized for bad behavior, and Taliban actually, I forgot whether they whisked her or caned or something. And uh, there, was a dis there was a dislike of that in Pakistan, but people did not rise to do anything very much about it, uh, just regarded that to be a very bad thing happening. But then one of the persons connected actually, but not a member of Pakistan Human Rights Commission, a friend of ours, Yangi, and I, Rahman, who recently died, um, took huge risk and went there with a camera shaped like a telephone. So he can be seen throughout the whiffing scene of the girl using the telephone. In fact, he was taking the, a video. And then it was put on the Pakistan main channels as uh, what's happening in the Fort Valley, so that the Pakistani population not only knew that about it, but actually saw, including the pain of the girl. And the policy became unviable. The Pakistan army, which had not earlier, had not earlier uh, going to intervene, now was forced to intervene. There was so much public demand. Now, this is a positive fruit of modernity, making video a, a help in the, in, the, in the human rights thing. But then there will be other when I cannot keep my privacy when things get, you know, moved away from me or uh, quite often happens, there are financial transactions that take place which strengthens one is going on in both in India and Pakistan right now a lot, uh, when which takes away uh, power from ordinary people to others. Well, that's a negative thing. So I think Lee is very right to emphasize that there are problems, there are benefits too, and sometimes the beneficial channel can be used for dealing with the problem too. That's where uh, the skill 
of political action uh, really is. So we are entering into a territory of great excitement, and I hope uh, Lee will continue to think about these problems and propose ways and means of how to relate them. Oh, I'd love to be as hopeful as you, Professor Sen, but with the great internet shutdowns that we have, you know, in Kashmir and in India, I mean, it's, 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 yeah, it's such a bleak picture too, what the digital age can do for human rights. Uh, and in relation to yeah, that... But you know, the digital age could have done that. I mean, the, uh, sorry, even in the absence of digital age, uh, those nasty policies could well have been uh, implemented. Uh, I think the digital age generates the possibility of, of, of addressing that issue. It hasn't been addressed now, and I might be put in jail for suggesting that people look into ways and means of doing that. But, you know, it's a free country, it's a democratic country. There's no particular reason why people shouldn't use every means that are available to yeah. pursue what we think are, is morally right. That is, in many ways, of course, a main lesson of Mary Wilson-Craft. You cannot get away from moral examination of everything. Uh, neither the American Declaration of Independence nor the French Declaration of, of the Rights of Men, uh, all of them, are often for scrutiny, examination, critique. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. I, talking about India, I, I have two questions on India and China from two separate people. Um, Monica Gogoi, who is a student at Presidency University in, in, in India, um, she's asking about the present condition of India and what structural changes in public policy would you recommend to protect human rights in India at present? And then I have a, a, a question from Susan Rifkin, who's a former lecturer at the LSC, who is asking, how do you apply your analysis to the Chinese approach to human rights? And I thought it'd be nice to maybe think about these two questions together. Yeah. Well, the Chinese approach to human rights is a much more complicated issue uh, because of the, as we know from, uh, particularly from the Hong Kong example, that uh, there are many layers of control and thinking that come into it. And I'm really, I, I don't think we have uh, at all the time to go into the Chinese question. That's really difficult. On the Indian side, the, I, I mean, India did begin with this great deal of respect for human rights. Uh, if you look at all the discussion in the Constitution Assembly, that went on on the subject of human rights uh, quite a lot. They didn't use the word, but it's, it was very much present. But the, I think there were, I would say, two basic faults, which I think was underestimated. One is that you could divide the role of um, Executive, legislature, and judiciary, you can. However, the executive has an advantage 
if it is uh, able to affect things, like how are judges remunerated? Do they receive any kind of um, support and, or, or benefit when they retire uh, and so on? Now, I'm not saying the judges are all affected, right? Many of them are not. There are cases of wonderful judgments that have come even very recently. But the executives have an ability to do things which judiciary and legislature cannot. Secondly, if on top of the executives, and maybe with the help of the executives, including uh, the use of money, if you manage to capture the legislature, then it can produce a dramatic deflection from the uh, demands of democracy in a way that could be very difficult to resist because you get the legislature going on providing some kind of support, executives carrying it out in some other kind of way and then making sure that the two together produce a system which is very difficult to resist. So I think we have to do two things. Uh, this is to Monica, See, and she comes from the college where I was myself educated. Uh, so Monica, there, there are two things here. We have to examine, uh, and this is a difficult thought, as to in what way we should um, see the Constitution needing a further examination, and the only establishment that can do it, of course, is the judiciary. But secondly, a lot of the Constitution is being violated in, in serious ways. For example, I would say the uh, uh, not to have moved the habeas corpus uh, over a long stretch of time is a violation of the spirit of the Constitution. I would say also that uh, 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 there are a number of penalties that people have, including um, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the British used to uh, call it, I'm trying to think what the Indian name is, that is keeping people for jail, in jail, not on grounds that they have done anything, but on grounds that they might. When I was a, when I was in school, all my uncles were in jail, not because they had done anything, but the British thought this was British India that they might. So they were uh, um, treated as having committed this crime, not because they had but they could. And I thought that when India became independent, that would be abolished. Well, the Congress dragged its feet in, in reform it, like in many other things, they should have done much more. But then after the regime changed to the present uh, regime, you found a much greater, much more vigorous 
uh, execution of things that are basically not in the spirit of the Constitution. So I think we need both constitutional thinking and also constitutional application uh, in, in, in dealing with these things. I mean, India is a democratic country. It has that structure and it's, there's no reason why we shouldn't claim the fruits of that. Thank you for that hopeful note on India. <laughs> um, I, I, we will shortly run out of time, but there are really some really fantastic questions um, out there. And maybe I will end with two, uh, and then you can decide how you would like to end it. And I'd also like to invite B if she'd like to add anything at the end. Yeah, and and so I'll, I'll, the two I'd like I've picked are um, one which has troubled me uh, earlier today. I was on the phone to a friend saying, you know, yeah, you know, um, uh, that we're I was chairing this lecture and so excited about it. And she said, yeah, I'm just reading about Mary Wollstonecraft and and William Godwin, you know, and the and the domestic servants they had, and um, you know, raising the issues of the internal contradictions that um, uh, that. That we all that we all have, I guess. Um, and the, this the question is from Eileen Hunt, uh, who is at the University of Notre Dame in political science, and she's basically asking about um, Wollstonecraft um, supporting the French Revolution, which also failed to abolish slavery initially and failed to support mulatto rights, leading to the Haitian Revolution in 1791. Um, you know, she's at the one hand supporting the French Revolution, but on the other hand, you know, we've got that we've got the treatment of what's happening in Haiti. Uh, another interesting fact is her brother Charles went to America and owned slaves in New Orleans, uh, while Wollstonecraft did not stay in touch with him once when he went to America, she helped him get there. How do we make sense? I mean, she's asking this question question about how do we make sense of these real or potential ideological contradictions as scholars, as scholars of Wollstonecraft's uh, political philosophy or human rights and the injustice of slavery. And I guess this is a general question about the contradictions, you know, that in, in progressive thinking and in our actions, that um, uh, in, in radical thought more generally, uh, that's one question. And the other is a kind of more hopeful one, which is from Simon Cole, uh, who is an alternative tour, tour guide in Hackney in East London. And he's asking outside of the universities, where are the Wollstonecrafts? Where are the RNs uh, today? How do you, how do you see, what do you, what do you, what do you see happening? I'm sorry, I didn't get the question. They, what, what? Well, but from Simon Cole, he's basically asking, uh, you know, yeah. this is a month where we've got, you know, such bleak month, we've refused to share vaccine patents, we've condemned vast numbers of people to death. Where is the public debate outside universities on the ethics of state policy? Where are the Wollstonecraft's rents of today? Where, you so know, where is the rhetorical question? It isn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where, exactly. Is saying, why not? Uh, I mean, he can start it as much as I can. So I think, uh, and maybe at the age of 87, I'm less able to start it than he is. No, I mean, that is a big question, obviously, because um, if you can't start, uh, for example, they did doing the, it compared the food shortage of the, during the Second World War, uh, that, led to rationing and the rationing had the effect 
of eliminating uh, undernourishment, uh, uh, severe undernourishment altogether. Uh, and so one uh, contrary effect was that Jefferson Britain was suffering from huge shortage of food and the nourishment entirely disappeared. Uh, in the year before the rationing, the, sorry, decades before the rationing, uh, British life expectancy went up by one and a half years. But in the year of the rationing, it went up by seven years. That was an enormously positive, very dialectical happening in response. Had it happened in terms of um, uh, the medical care and sharing, uh, no, I did write like, an article in the Financial Times exactly discussing this issue. I'll have to refer that to, to Simon, I think. And, uh, no, these are problems that have arisen and we have to talk about them and uh, hopefully arrive at somewhere on that. Uh, on the first day, the, the, the difficulty with, uh, I don't know of the particular events mentioned, uh, uh, did, did, uh, did um, uh, Mary treat her servants particularly badly? I know that somebody, an Oxford historian, had claimed that in, a, in an article that I read a long time ago. I, I don't know whether that's true or not. And, uh, and I, you know, I can't be... Difficulty in dealing with questions in a meeting is that somebody informs you of something which you have no way of checking, and then you have to respond, assuming it to be true. I just don't know. The, and what happened to Fulton's brother? I ought to read about the brother, but I can't read it now and answer the question. So I think that in terms of uh, fairness of question, question mongering, if I may mention, uh, use the word, one has to see what could be legitimately expected to be discussed uh, in, in a situation without a radical change in, uh, in, uh, in, in the informational structure. The servant issue is a, is a big one, by the way, and I wish that uh, the, I forgot the name of the person who raised that, uh, that should be taken up because quite often people are comfortable with having servants of their own and yet uh, they're very egalitarian in some other respect. Uh, given the contradictions that make up uh, a human being, uh, there's nothing astonishing about it. On the other hand, is it a good thing? No. And can something be discussed on that? Yes. Have books been written on the subject? Yes. Two from Bangladesh I can refer to straight away, dealing exactly with that question. So it depends. And also there's a question of context sometimes. 
uh, they they uh, claim that uh, when uh, the Russian the uh, Russian uh, the so the Communist Party was trying to achieve a deal with the Germans uh, at the at the time of the First World War in order to pave the way with the French Revolution. Sorry, it was Russian Revolution. Uh, it's thought Trotsky, I don't believe it's correct at all, but it's a story that's told by actually no less than Nehru in his book that he wrote to Lenin saying that I've been invited to a party where I could discuss this um, issue very well, which is such an important issue, but they're insisting that I uh, should come in tuxedos, and that goes against the principle of the party. What do you think? Uh, you wrote that to Lenin, and Lenin is supposed to have replied, saying, if it would help you to strike a deal, go in a petticoat. Uh, and, and so, <laughs> so it was just changing, just distinguishing between context and depending on the context, you may have to do things which are not so good. But the issue of servants or issue of what, how your brother treats others, how they think about slavery, and not uh, trivial at all. They are really big issues. But we have to distinguish between distinct things that are coming into a, a, a story. And you, to get a kind of comprehensive thing, get a woman like Mary Wollstonecraft, who got all the right ideas, who gives all the right examples, who provides all the strong arguments, who has no uh, bad relation with his wife, or husband, or children, or servant, uh, or with anyone else that he encounters on the street, who uh, none of whose relations uh, go away to another country and behave badly. It's, it's, it's yeah. an easy picture to construct. <laughs> so if the evolution required that, it may be very hard to have revolution, but on the other hand, these questions are important. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, we've, we've run up well over time and you've graced us with your presence and your intellect and your brilliant political ideas, which are so important right now. So we're so grateful um, for you for having given this lecture and been around for the discussion. To, and I'm sorry to the audience for uh, those who have not been able to ask their, have their questions Hello. raised. So many, so many amazing questions, but we have a huge audience out there and huge numbers of questions coming in. But I would like to give uh, the floor to B just for a minute or two, if she's got oh, some uh, final thoughts that she'd like to add before we close uh, today's lecture. I just had a very brief answer to the last question from Simon, who asked, where are the Wollstonecrafts now? It's the work of the Wollstonecraft Society to oh. enable and support and generate 
future Wollstonecraft. So please support us. Go to the website and you can sign up for our quarterly newsletter. And um, you know, thank you very much for tuning in to listen to this lecture.